The late night boys are back at it again and doing it for the art. All for the art. Welcome to the pod, people. The show where the only thing that matters is artistic integrity, even at the cost of human life. I'm Matisse Van Rossum, and I'm joined by my fellow murder artists, Ben Sheets. The podcast medium is just a postmodern expression of contemporary subjects on uh, on uh, art words. Well, I liked where you were going with that <laughs> for a little while. And uh, Eugene is also here. Oh, yeah, sorry, I was just busy eating some of my delicious uh, wheatgrass pancakes. So <laughs> I was uh, caught up in all that. Let me wash it down. Don't forget this. the garbanzo bean omelet. Oh, I have a or garbanzo, was it chickpea bean, omelet. Uh, garbanzo bean smoothie right over here. So let me just take a little chunk of that. Mm. Health. You guys got some Coke? Actually, I got a big bag of crank. <laughs> if we're going to be up late recording this podcast, I need to be hyped up. <laughs> well, tonight we're actually recording from Eugene's house, which is a change of pace for us. It feels weird to be sitting here at this table. Yeah, I'm sitting in this very extremely <laughs> low chair, you're, feeling you're the, comfy as hell. You're in like a fucking lazy boy pulled up at the dining room table and me and Eugene are over here in regular chairs. It's the king's chair over it's there. It's the throne. It's a new table, so we had to get familiar with it, comfortable Find out where to put our microphone stands. Yeah, it took, us like, it, it, out. it took us like 10 minutes to set up our <laughs> microphone stands. Um, well, Ben, I, I hear you've got some news for us. Why don't you fill yeah. us in? In the world of art house cinema, which is very fitting for our art house art 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 episode... What is art? What is art? What are frogs? The director of Call Me By Your Name, uh, I believe his name is... Luca Guadini, Guadino? Guadagnino? <laughs> Guadagnino? If I'd watched the Oscars, I would know this. He is putting out a Suspiria remake this year. Produced by Amazon Studios, actually. Trying to get in on that Netflix money. Yeah, um, but apparently there was a cinema convention, CinemaCon, and they showed uh, a clip from Suspiria over a lunch, and it might have been one of the most graphic scenes from the movie, um, which I find hilarious that they did over lunch. Yeah, right, um, while people are eating. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the idea of a Suspiria remake and whether you th you guys think it has potential, what you guys would want to see in a remake of Suspiria. Well, I got to see Suspiria for the first time, like, three, four years ago. One thing I like, uh, just in the uh, article that you sent to us is that he isn't trying to imitate everything about the original. Uh, he got Tom York, you know, of Radiohead fame to help do the soundtrack because I think that's one of the... Johnny Greenwood was busy, I uh, guess. Yes, well, well, working on another Amazon movie that we just saw, You Were Never yeah. Really Here, so... Really yeah, great good. movie. Yeah. I really enjoyed that a lot. Amazon seems to be... Uh, 
they they're picking them well, uh, you know, with an odd Woody Allen movie put in there. Bezos but. eats one iguana, and now he has the power of filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's really the grand. That's where the power of filmmaking lies. <laughs> yes, devouring it's exotic the secret. animals. <laughs> if we want to stop being hacks, all we have to do is eat iguanas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I'd be looking forward to it. I thought that the original was was really good. I think that remakes can be appropriate if uh you know if it, if it's been a enough time where like no one it'll is... it'll definitely be interesting seeing their approach to it because it seems like they're trying to take anything, a totally different I approach rem- what i remember of the original suspiria and i like a lot of argento stuff but suspiria has beautiful gorgeous crazy visuals and one of the dumbest stories yeah i i'm on the same page with you actually like it might be somewhat of a hot take in the film world but suspiria is one of my least favorite argento films i really like argento like deep red is awesome uh opera is really great uh tenebrae is really great and uh, Suspiria just doesn't really do it for me. Like, the best things about it are the production design and cinematography yeah, and, the, well, and the Goblin soundtrack. Yeah, the yes. Goblin soundtrack is really fantastic. There's sequences in Suspiria that are, like, peak Argento for Oh, me. for sure. Like, the whole scene where she's, like, falling through the 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 ceiling window into, like, the the very colorful room... Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Um, full of like barbed wire or yeah. whatever. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm curious. I, I also uh, thought it was interesting that they're trying to really not copy the original Guadagnino or what, however you pronounce his name. Says that he's trying to avoid the really uh, strong primary colors that you see in the original one uh, and try to make it more dark, which. Could be Worries good. Me. It Worries could be good. Me. It could be bad. If anything, Argento is known for it. the the vibrant colors in his film. Right, and that's one of my favorite things about Suspiria. So I don't know. It it sounds interesting. The the way they describe the scene uh, that was screened with a, a a dancer being thrown around a mirrored room telekinetically. I quote. Shrieking in pain, the dancer's body was twisted and folded into a number of unnatural positions. Eventually, Johnson's routine came to an end, uh, Dakota Johnson, and what was left in the other room was basically just a crumpled, leaking mess that used to be a human being. That sounds awesome. Yeah, that sounds crazy gruesome and very funny to show to thousands of people eating food over a lunch and they (laughs) showed it but yeah the twitter's apparently been been blowing up people who went to CinemaCon saying that people were turning away from the screen and that it's one of the most amazing graphic things they've ever seen people were getting up and walking out that's the kind of shit that i'm into because if people hate it that much then i feel like i'm gonna like it i hope so it's very weird to me that uh, this director is doing it because uh, "Call Me by Your Name" is not a horror movie. Well, I'm no. sure it's a horror I movie mean, for uh, 
for the God-loving conservative Americans of this country, like uh, James Woods. Oh, yeah, uh, I bet James Woods hates it. Right. (laughs) It's the death of society, that movie. So So it's a liberal agenda. He doesn't doesn't have a problem being in a movie where a big vagina grows on his stomach and he shoves videotapes into it. But God forbid those... Gays. They were in gay Italy. videotapes. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a vagina on his chest, not a butthole. <laughs> oh, Make God. America great again. <laughs> well, I I have still not seen Call Me by Your Name, but from I still haven't either. From clips I have seen, it looks really nice, and so I it, wonder how uh, some of that visual flair might be transferred. I actually over. did see it, and it was not good. <laughs> on in my opinion yeah i, I mean, think you're in the, in the minority it's a lot of just a super rich kid with no problems moping around and then getting kind of creepily hit on by army hammer who is a grown adult and the kid is like 16 or 17 and it's very uncomfortable in that respect and people keep brushing off that fact it's the greatest love story of our generation ben Statutory rape is cool, guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess we'll have to see when uh, what this Suspiria remake is going to be like. I'm not going to write it off just because Call Me By Your Name was not a horror movie, because I think we've especially seen in the last couple of years that people who do not normally make horror movies have made some fucking great horror movies. I just hope it's not pretentious, man. Like, yeah. That's my worry, especially that... With the the fact that they're not using vibrant colors, that kind of makes me worried. Well, that that doesn't make me think it's going to be pretentious. That makes me think it's going to be too grimdark. Well, I mean, self-seriousness and grimdarkness kind of go hand in hand. I hope it's not a dour exercise. Well, I, I guess we'll see. I did not see is there a release date for no, this 2018 yet? sometime sometime this apparently, year apparently david gordon green was originally going oh to yeah it. fall fall of 2018 it says on the very bad poster Ugh. yeah god i hope the movie's not as bad as this poster yeah this is. poster is just like it's a very very fat s yes spray on painted on concrete, concrete yeah <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's jump into our theme for the evening. We're doing something a little different this time. We're exploring a couple of films in which the desire to create art drives people to murder. And we're going to be starting with a review of Roger Corman's Bucket of Blood from 1959. Yeah, yeah. Bucket of Blood is a movie about this guy who is a busboy, essentially, at this coffee shop. The Yellow Door, the yellow door I think. Yellow Door, it's yeah. like a It's like a, a cafe slash art club where yeah. just a bunch of beatnik artists hang well, the, out. The way they introduce it right at the beginning of the movie is great. It's this guy uh, reciting the most pretentious poetry I think I've ever heard. With yeah. a saxophone player just like noodling be- in the background. Yeah, noodling behind him. Ah, oh, what a funny way to like set up the scene. I, I would like to read a sample from said poem. Oh, please because do. It, it, it 
cannot be stated enough how funny and pretentious this is. It begins, I will talk to you of art, for there is nothing else to talk about, for there is nothing else. Life is an obscure hobo bumming a ride on the omnibus of art. Burn gas, buggies, and whip your sour cream of circumstance and hope. (laughs) And go ahead and sleep your bloody heads off. Creation is. All else is not. Creation is graham crackers. Let it crumble to feed the creator. Feed him that he may be satisfied. The artist is. All others are not. It goes on for quite a bit longer. I'm not going to take up our time, but the I think... The thing is, it didn't bother me in the movie, because, like, you can tell, like, they want us to be in on the joke. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, this is fucking satire in its highest yeah. form. And it's also done over the opening credits, so it, it creates a nice little introduction as we sort of pull out from this guy and see this uh, very snooty beatnik art club... And we see the opening credits and uh, see our main character, Walter, going around and clearing tables. Before we get too heavily into into this movie, I think we should talk a little bit about Roger Corman and who he is yes, for people okay. who might not be familiar. So Roger Corman is essentially the godfather of B-movies. He had a stint in the 60s uh, where he... Directed some movies, but uh, primarily he's known as this big producer of hundreds of B movies and uh, his IMDb genre list, films. His IMDb lists him as the producer of 417 films over the course of his career, which is crazy. He's been working for fucking ever. He did his directing stint for a little while. I think he directed like 30 something films, something like that. He he d- he did a lot of uh, Vincent Price movies in like the 60s. In like, yeah, like uh, Mask of the Red Death and stuff like that. The uh, movies by him, directed by him, that I've seen are all fantastic. He did the uh, the original Little Shop of Horrors. Yes, which is incredible, and I would absolutely recommend, especially uh, for Jack Nicholson, who plays the crazy dentist. I've never seen the original. I love the remake with Rick Moranis. Jack Nicholson goes like full sadist as the dentist in the, the 60s version. Well, I think is Jack Nicholson's awesome. great at that. Yeah. He's mostly known as a producer of a lot of big movies, and he gave a lot of directors that we have come to be known as household names, you know? Uh, your Scorsese's, your uh, Peckinpah's, your, uh, uh, your Lucas's, even Spielberg. I think Duel was uh, produced by Roger Corman. I think you're right. Yeah, he gave these directors as... Uh, their start, and he's hugely in- influential in uh, American movies. Yeah, and I mean, he in in his later career produced a shitload of like r- those really really terrible like asylum style sci fi movies, like fucking uh, Shark to Puss. And like Dino Croc versus Crocagator and really crazy dumb shit like that. Because I think Roger Corman was just like, I'm going to give anybody a chance to make their movie, which is pretty cool, even if a lot of those movies are 
hot steaming piles of garbage. I'm sure a lot of it was money too, you know? Of course. Easy money. He can just put his name on it. Doesn't really have to do much, most likely. Yeah, and I don't think, you know, B-movies would be the same without him. So he's, he's very significant in cinema history. But let's get back into Bucket of Blood. So as Ben said, it's about a, a busboy, a sort of simple-minded busboy who works at this uh, art cafe who wants more than anything to be an artist, but he's not creative at all. It starts with him buying this big lump of clay and trying to form it into a bust, and he just can't do it because he has no talent. Because he tries and he makes... Uh... A sort of face out of all of it, but just it's so... a super crude face. Yeah, exactly. It's holes just like... for eyes, <laughs> two holes and a line for the smile, and it's just uh, he's he's so invested in it, but yeah, he just can't do it. He's too uh, dim-witted. I, I love how the inciting event of this movie is just kind of a comedy of errors. Uh, Walter, I think his name is. Yeah. Uh, Walter he, Paisley. Yep, he uh, comes home uh, to work on this crude sculpture uh and uh his next door neighbor the the landlady her cat is missing and so he starts hearing this cat meowing wildly while he's trying to work and at the same time he's uh like what boiling water yeah and uh Boiling water, sculpting, and trying to shut out the sounds of this cat. Yeah, so he's trying to multitask and really failing at every every step. Uh, but the cat keeps meowing, so in this uh, frantic panic, he uh, grabs a nearby knife uh, from the kitchen as he's grabbing the boiling water, and he kind of just uh, stabs at his wall to try to free the cat. And <laughs> yeah, he tries to cut the cat out of the wall with a knife. And he <laughs> just stabs the cat <laughs> just immediately. And, well, he has the thinnest walls too because a he can stab through his walls, but b he can also just like punch through them. To, yeah, he like, like snaps <laughs> at it with his hand and it breaks, which makes you question why he wouldn't just do that to begin. <laughs> <laughs> and he pulls out this really terrible, fake-looking cat doll. Yeah, with a knife in it. <laughs> with a knife stuck in it. And rather than uh, go tell his landlord what happened, he tries to hide the evidence by uh, covering the cat in uh, clay, pretending it's a sculpture. And he takes it to the yellow door the next day where the the owner and this other girl who Walter's in love with see it and they're blown away by the lifelike realism of this cat. The anatomy's perfect, as they say. It's just this dead this dead cat with a knife sticking out. I love how they it. just leave the knife in it. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't take the knife out. It's just a it's just a, a dead clay cat with and, a knife. Yeah, they ask him what the piece is called and he's just like, uh dead cat <laughs> it's called dead cat and so he convinces them to let him put it up for display in the cafe and try to sell it and it's a big hit and everybody is amazed and they they want to know what his next piece is so you know meanwhile 
there is uh, an undercover police investigation of the yellow door because it's been discovered to be somewhat of a heroin den for all of these beatniks. Which yeah. is really funny. I like in the opening scene, there's the one table of guys wearing like these fleece jackets and like Civil War hats. And they're just talking to this chicken like, yeah, we're going to show you how to live the real beatnik lifestyle. <laughs> well, yeah, those two characters are like constant comic relief throughout the film, which is, you know, it's already a funny movie, but they play these like over the top druggies. Uh, they they kind of just seem like stoners, even though they're supposed to be like heroin junkies. Yeah, they're like, man, I'm way too far out. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines. One of the women who frequents the cafe gives Walter some heroin because she's in love with his art. And After, like, aggressively flirting with him. Borderline sexually assaulting him, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, my pussy is so wet for you. I saw your dead cat, and now I just need that Walter Paisley. And one of the undercover cops follows Walter back to his house and confronts him. And when he pulls his gun on Walter to try to arrest him, Walter panics, which is also very funny because he's just standing there going, you're going to shoot me. I just know it. You're going to shoot me. Please don't shoot me. And he has like a, a large flat skillet, I guess, that's used for making pancakes. Right. It, it almost doesn't even it shouldn't count as a pan. It, it doesn't like it, it doesn't have a, a lip at all. It's literally just like a <laughs> yeah. flat pan with a handle on it, which I would feel risky making pancakes. in. Yeah. If you if you over pour the pancake mix, it's just going to spill all yeah, over the place. Exactly. There's no barriers, no protection. But uh, he, uh, in in self-defense, bashes this cop over the head with this big pan and kills him. So he uh, covers him in clay. At the yellow door, like, there are some rich patrons coming along saying they'll, they'll pay a lot of money for these, uh, these statues because they think Walter is this, like, brilliant art master. And that uh the the statue of the murdered cop looks super derpy. Everybody's just like in total shock and awe, like they think it's perfect, but it's also so horrifying they can't look at it. So it's even more like provocative. And he just calls it murdered man. Murdered man. <laughs> continuing his trend of lack of creativity. At a certain point, his boss, the owner of the yellow door, realizes what's going on when he accidentally knocks over the dead cat and a piece of the clay breaks off and he sees fur coming out. So that uh, cues him in to the fact that Walter's sculptures are just corpses covered in clay. But he reluctantly doesn't tell anybody because he's making a lot of money off of selling the sculptures. Yeah, when the money's coming in, why why fuck with it? Exactly, because like you said, there's all these hyper-rich patrons who are willing to pay hundreds of dollars for these works of art. Well, the, the part I love about that is uh, when he first puts the, the cat in the yellow door, he's like, yeah, we'll split whatever you get 50 50 
And then the the rich patron offers him like five hundred dollars for it, and he gives Walter fifty. Yeah, and instantly Walter thinks he's like this super rich art elite. Yeah, he's like, wow, I got fifty dollars for my sculpture. He immediately buys like the nicest suit he can find. Uh, yeah, it does not take long for him to absorb himself in the whole beatnik lifestyle. Cause yeah, it seems to be what he craves. It feels so, uh, I don't know what the word is, but almost like prophetic, like the way they show this whole art scene and how seriously and they all take themselves and oh, yeah. all the yeah. organic shit that they eat. Well, so that's like, like that's like the real, the real satire of it all is like all of these really self-important, pretentious artists, like that poem that I, that I read from earlier that think that art is the highest form of expression which i mean i i as an artist i agree with but there's definitely uh a self-seriousness uh, uh, yeah that a lot of artists have that i absolutely still exist today you know yeah i i would agree like the movie feels super current in that respect the satire felt you know just as relevant today as ever yeah, absolutely. Like these super pretentious uh, artist types, especially the poet who's the most over the top, remind me of people that we went to school with, you know, like yeah. these people absolutely still exist. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to, you know, express something with your art. But the pretension is is laughable, honestly, with some of these folks. Yeah. So from the the murdered man, you know, he he ultimately beyond being an artist, he wants to impress this this girl Carla who uh works at the yellow door. Um yeah. I don't know what she does there though. She's always just like hanging out at the tables yeah. with the other people, but she does work there. I thought she was like married or a co-owner. She's not married, but like a co-owner or something with the the guy because she's like uh making decisions with him he's trying to impress her and she suggests um that he do a female figure so uh, and all the beatniks are like you gotta do nudes you're not a real artist unless you do nudes (laughs) this model who hangs out in the yellow door offers to model for him and so he strangles her and and covers her in clay. And I don't know, like... The meanest model out there. Yeah, she's super rude. I don't know how he's hardening these statues. I don't think he's firing them in a kiln, but they still break when they're knocked over. He just uh, has a torch. He just leaves the oven on and sets them in front of it. <laughs> it's really funny to see how he sort of becomes inducted into this pretentious art community by the people who openly mocked him before. And as soon as he creates something, they start lauding him as like the greatest artistic genius of all time. The poet guy even writes uh, an equally pretentious poem about him. Walter starts wearing berets because this was the fifties. So, uh, so all artists have to wear berets. That's how that's how people know that you're a real artist. That's a, that's a fact. That's just science. So he uh, makes another statue of this woman. Yeah, he wants to have a show, 
right? Where uh, he shows multiple of his, uh, you know, statues uh, because the the owner of the yellow door is like, uh, instead of just keep showing, you know, one statue at a time, we should show a whole series of them, you know, kind of in hopes that like Walter would take so much time that he would get caught before he was able to make too many more of these but it kind of backfired because walter makes these in like a day i guess he makes them in a matter of a couple of hours he's very quick at covering the bodies with clay yeah he gets um, drunk at that party and on his way home uh accosts uh a construction guy and cuts his head off with a circular (laughs) saw which i thought was fucking awesome and then he just coats the head in clay yeah, what, it's the goofiest uh, facial expression yes. I think I've ever seen. Closest analog is like, do you guys remember that statue that was like a meme on Twitter for a while? Where it's like a bust of some dude's head and he was just making the dumbest face imaginable? Yeah, It I looked exactly so. like that. Yeah, well, I mean, even the murdered man does, too. Like, these just look derpy as shit, which is really funny because they're supposed to be, like, horrifying, but they're laughable to look at just because they're really cheap. I mean, this is a B-movie, and it had very, very low budget, so it's uh, super over-the-top and campy. Well, and that's the thing, too, you know, it it knows it's a horror comedy, so, you know, skipping on... The, the horror elements is not too much of a mark in my book, you know? No, absolutely not. Like, it's it's very funny, and it's only, like, an hour and five minutes or something yeah, like it's that. Super, it's, it's, it's a very super short. short movie. Both of these movies we watched today are very short. It's so well-structured where, you know, it's con- kind of constantly a comedy of errors where Walter is... At the beginning, at least, just accidentally stumbling his way into murder. Yeah. Um, when he... You, you can tell that at first he, he struggles with it, with his conscience, but then he gets so wrapped up in the art world that he feels like, at a certain point, he starts to think that he is actually doing people a favor by turning them into art because it's ensuring their immortality after he's been talking to the super pretentious poet. The the poet's flowery prose pushed him into interpreting it the wrong way and killing people. Right, so he he himself gets very self-righteous about it later. And when he... Uh, asks Carla to marry him, and she says no. He tells her that he's going to make a statue of her to make her immortal. Shortly thereafter, uh, at the show, somebody, I think, rubs a little bit of clay off of one of the fingers. Yeah, of, uh, they, see of the a, they see a fingernail, like a, an actual fingernail in the, the statue of the woman. And so they immediately realize that all of his statues have corpses in them, and so they they form a, a a lynch mob to chase Walter down. Yeah, while he's chasing Carla, <laughs> which the is whole a time. which is a very funny scene where it, him chasing her and then a mob chasing him, <laughs> yeah. just like through a warehouse. Yeah, it, it's very it's very good. And the poet is wearing sandals with his tuxedo that he was wearing to the party. Apparently, uh, I was reading that. 
uh, that guy showed up that way with a tuxedo and sandals to uh, the premiere. And people were like, oh, man, he's in character. That's so cool. But in reality, he just had to wear sandals so much during the production that, like, his feet his were feet so swollen up. that he, like, couldn't take them off. Oh, my God. I what? think it was just because he couldn't wear regular yeah, shoes because yeah. his feet were too swollen from wearing sandals <laughs> too much. Jesus. Uh, I just thought that was too good. <laughs> this this mob is chasing him, and he's like, I know how to make a great grand finale that people won't forget. And so he essentially just runs back to his house and, like, puts a little bit of clay on his face and then hangs himself. He's being tormented by the the voices of the people that he's killed. And so to immortalize himself, he just smears some clay on his face. <laughs> Which is, that last shot is very funny where he's hanging and he's just got, like, a little bit of clay, like, smeared over the front of his face. <laughs> Oh man, I I enjoyed this movie a lot more than I expected when it started. I I think that despite its low budget sort of schlockiness, it's it's absolutely trying to get at something, which definitely goes to show that regardless of the kind of movies Roger Corman did that he's by no means a hack. Did the 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 comedy elements work for you, Eugene? I think the detail they put into the whole art culture that the main character is trying to be a part of, I think all of that was was done really well because it's uh, it's certainly it's 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 satirizing all of this kind of stuff. But Roger Corman is a filmmaker. I mean, I'm sure that he's got a pre a pre a real appreciation for art and everything as well. So I, I'm sure I'm sure that there's that there was something in his mind when he was making this that as sort of uh, a, a low budget B movie director that he probably found himself in these kinds of circles with people who were really uh, really pretentious about like what art was and what it needed to be good. And I think that that's sort of what he's commenting on here, that like somebody can just kill people and cover them in clay and sort of trick these, well, these that's the super self-serious people. This into... movie came out in 59, which was like abstract expressionalism. and Right. Like, so I, I feel like he was definitely commenting on some of that. And the thing is like, all the commentary on that with the satire, it feels so current. If anything, this movie has proven that, like, regardless of what time period it is, there's always going to be those pretentious, self-serious people out there. <laughs> I think this would be a good film to show in, like, entry-level art classes in college to sort of help people not take themselves so seriously as artists because i think that that really ends up doing you a disservice in the long run because if you can't have a certain lightheartedness about what you're doing if you take yourself too seriously then you're not gonna really be able to grow as an artist i think because those kinds of people can't take criticism yeah exactly. those are the kind of people who get criticized and think that it's the other person that's wrong and that they're not at fault at all. And how are you going to make yourself better 
if you can't see that something you're doing isn't working. It's it reminds me of that video that's uh that you showed me actually, Ben, that's gotten really big lately of uh William Friedkin interviewing Nicholas Winding Rain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, who Nicholas Winding Rain is calling his film Only God Forgives a masterpiece and comparing it with things like Citizen Kane and stuff like that, totally seriously, without the slightest trace of irony. And, and the whole time, William Friedkin's just asking if there's a doctor around. He's like, is there a medic around here? This man needs a medic! <laughs> if you haven't seen that video, I would absolutely recommend looking that up, because it's fucking hilarious, and just like you said, you know, it is the same kind of of thing that Roger Corman is showing in this movie, that same kind of self-seriousness and lack of uh, of self-awareness as an artist that I think is really integral to being a, a truly good artist. Yeah. So, well, I think another big theme of this movie is uh, it really comes out during when uh, Carla and Walter are talking right after he s- asks her to marry him because she kissed him when he, uh, she saw his sculpture of the, the naked lady. Um, so he thought, you know, she was in love with him. And she's like, I love your art, but I don't love you yeah she even says Um, that that kiss was for your art so it's really interesting to me how like this this movie plays with the idea of art versus artists because it seems to say through carla that like the art is you know sacred and held at such a high level even if the artists aren't but because the art is held at such a high level that the artist let it immediately go to their head and there's a danger in that. And like you were saying, you know, that kind of makes for a perfect entry art class movie, you know, because you want to avoid, you know, having the praises of your art affect your ego too much. Yeah. I, I interacted with so many of those people in my time in film school. Like, People who just think that even as a fucking freshman, all they do is create masterpieces. Like, nobody likes criticism. Nobody likes to have their stuff criticized. But especially if you're hearing the same criticisms from multiple people, like, maybe there's something to that. Like, constructive criticism is one of the absolute most important things about creating anything. You gotta you gotta see how it works with your audience and if there's something that's not working you should probably think about maybe doing something about that you know i mean at the same time i don't think every criticism is good sometimes people just don't get what you're trying to do well they they even play with that in this movie because at one point uh the poet and his friends are sitting around a table talking and they're they're like you just have to be aware and one of the guys at the table is like aware of what 
and they're just like just aware yeah the the poet says uh another quote from the movie i'm proud to say my poetry is only understood by that minority which is aware yeah and then the 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 person sitting next to him is like aware of what and he's like just aware just aware um which i thought was really funny but also goes into that idea you know like the idea of not getting it is strange in art you know it is but it it does definitely hold true in certain circumstances if a bunch of people don't get what you're going for maybe you need to find a better way to express it but sometimes people just don't get it like that's definitely a fact and just because some people don't get it doesn't mean it's bad. Like, I th- I'm sure that there are certain things in this movie that would go over certain people's heads, and they would be like, oh, I don't get that. That's a boring, stupid movie. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess you're, you just don't get it. You yeah. know, it's there's a fine balance. You have to you have to walk the line. There's there's definitely a middle ground. You can't go too far into, oh, just nobody gets my art. Or, and But you also can't be, like, just taking every single thing that everybody says to heart. So I think that's that's really the, the lesson of this movie. It's so funny is the thing, you know? Like, we're, we're getting into heady topics kind of here, but, like, like this movie is just simple fun. It is fun, you know, it's it's nothing outstanding, I don't think, but it it's it's fun and it's witty and it's short. So it's not any sort of like slog. Um, And I mean, it's I think it's it's important even today, just as much today as it was in the 50s when it came out. Roger Corman had had some stuff going on in his head that I think is important. Yeah, well, I I feel like I can't really knock it for its imperfections, honestly, because, you know, if anything, this movie just screams, you know, stop taking art so seriously, man. Just enjoy it for what it is. Um, And all of the acting is really solid. I thought the guy playing Walter Paisley had this, like, weird nervous energy to him. He's he's very childish in in a kind of obnoxious way. He's all of the characters I would say in this movie, except for like Carla, maybe. But pretty much all the characters in this movie are really fucking annoying people. The kind of people that I personally would not want to spend any time around because I would end up just rolling my eyes right on out of their sockets, you know. Yeah, but I I definitely think that's intentional. That's not a knock, you know. That's the way these characters are written. They're supposed to be annoying. Exactly. They're yeah. supposed to be insufferable. Yeah. I loved the the nervous energy of Walter's character, though. Like he he always seemed like on the verge of just like a freak out or an anxiety attack. Like there's no better example of his manic energy than the the scene where he's trying to free the cat, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. That whole scene where he's trying so hard to create something because he wants to be an artist more than anything, and he just can't do it. That frustration is something that I think any artist can relate to when you're trying so hard to do something and you just can't make it work. 
I definitely sympathized with with his pain in that moment. Do you want to rate this? Yeah. Uh, you can start, Ben. Sure, yeah. This movie, uh, I thought it was fantastic. At, you know, an hour and, like, three minutes, it's brief enough that you can watch it just like any TV show. You know, it's super short. It's digestible. It's a whole lot of fun, and it holds up super well today with all the art stuff. Um, it felt very current. Like, it could have been released any time between 59 and now, and a lot of things would still be relevant. I thought the acting was over-the-top, but fun. The guy who played Walter was great. The guy who played the poet was great. And uh, the ideas of self-seriousness and art, I think, are very valid. Uh, Yeah, overall, I just think this is a fantastic movie and a great example of of exciting, schlocky, late 50s movies that are still kind of focused and grounded. So yeah, I'm going to give this a four and a half out of five. Well, as someone who isn't very uh, knowledgeable about Roger Corman's career, I, I, I guess I always find it it's it's strange to hear how influential his name is, but that it seems the movies he created were always that, I guess, schlocky. And, I mean, especially with this, that they have a, a very tongue-in-cheek attitude about the whole thing. Which, uh, I mean, hey, he, he obviously did, was doing something right. And for all these big-name directors to get their start with him. And, hey, that he's he's still kicking. He's like 92, but he's, uh, he's still alive. Yeah, so. it's crazy that he's still alive. That's uh, wild. I think I, he is retired at this point. Oh, I don't think absolutely. he's. I think the last. I would hope so. I think the last <laughs> thing he produced was in like 2010 or 11. Oh, uh, that's like still, that. that's. But, I mean, yeah, he went on. Yeah. He went on a ways, but and, I think uh, he's. I think he's finally uh, put put it to rest. Well, yeah, considering this movie came out in '59. Yeah, God. working into the 2010s, <laughs> wild. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, so, I a man committed to his craft. Yes, and I I think that that is because uh, even with the uh, the the silly uh, you know just like the plot of the movie, it, there's still that that attention to again as I mentioned before the art culture that shows that there was uh, there was uh, like a knowledge of all this going into the movie, and it's not just there to lampoon it, but also to sort of analyze it and to to say the the artists there are they really as bad as uh as as the people that want to be the artists but just aren't good enough at it uh rather than just uh the the attitude that is like cultivated in that and i I, I think again, yeah, as as we mentioned, for an hour, just a little over an hour, an hour yeah. it still manages to do a whole lot, and uh, I'm I'm gonna give it a four out of five for that reason. I think that it's uh, it's it's certainly worth watching, and it's funny to know that uh, he just reused uh, a lot of the same sets. For uh, for his next movie that come out, Little Shop of Horrors. Which yeah, it was the same sure set more, as uh, the as the Yellow Door. I saw that too. So hey, good, good on a man who knows that he can still get get a couple more uses out of a thing before getting it done. That's uh, that's efficiency right there. That is efficiency. Uh, I can admire it. I uh, yeah, I I enjoy this movie quite a bit. I don't think it's perfect, 
Um, there are a couple of narrative things that I felt could have been expanded on a little bit more, especially considering how short it was. I, I w- wished for a little bit more, I guess, investigation into what Walter was doing, like the, the ways in which he was discovered felt sort of convenient but you know overall i think it's very witty in its commentary uh it's it's really peak satire and i definitely think it's still relevant today overall and that you can still get a lot out of it from watching it even fucking almost 70 years later 60 70 years later so uh yeah i'm gonna give it a four out of five as well and so that'll give Bucket of Blood an average rating of 4.2 pods. And now... We're going to jump into our second and final film. We've only got two for this episode, but uh, two films that I think... Uh, make really good compliments to each other. Pair very well. Yes, good um, good sister films, even though they were made many, many, many years apart. Yeah, in uh, Bucket of Blood, you know, it was all about, you know, critiquing this uh, beatnik artist culture. Uh, and in our next movie, uh, Murder Party, it kind of explores and critiques the, uh, I guess you could say, NYU postgrad art world. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. This is the uh, the directorial or the feature length directorial debut of Jeremy Saulnier, who you may know from his other films, Blue Ruin and most recently Green Room. Both incredible. Both really, really excellent films. I think I actually saw both of those before I saw Murder Party, and I was very surprised at how comedic Murder Party is compared to the other two, which yeah, are just the other two these are... really dark, brutal, depressing, brooding movies. Right. Fun does not really exist. No, there, yeah. There's elements of comedy. In I both. mean, a little bit, but it's... I it, would say more so in Green Room than in Blue Ruin, but... You know, there's still hints of comedy there. There's, there's it's little, more subtle for sure. Yeah, hints of sort of wittiness, but still very dreary, violent films. And Murder Party is violent too, but much like Bucket of Blood, it's absolutely a horror comedy. It's extremely funny. Yeah, it um, came out in 2007, I believe. Yep. And uh, also another very short film, an hour and 19 minutes. Very low budget, too. Super you low were budget. It was, its budget was like 200,000 some, right? Under a quarter of a million, I mean, in its highest estimate. So you can tell it sort of comes across in the, in, in the production of the movie itself, but. Uh, I think it all just sort of, it feels like, uh, feels very, I guess, I don't know if B-movie is the right word. Yeah, it is. It, it definitely a, does have a, a B-movie quality. Yeah, I, it never feels cheap, though. It doesn't feel cheap, but it does have some of the same sort of uh, schlockiness of a B-movie. Yeah. And it it feels like it might have been inspired by Roger Corman. Yeah, definitely. In, in a lot of ways. I, I definitely saw some Bucket of Blood influences with this. 
It's about this sort of uh, loner doofus. I think it would be safe to call him a doofus. This uh, traffic enforcement agent. Who uh, on on Halloween, on his way home from work, stumbles upon an invitation on the sidewalk that literally just blows under his foot to a... Uh, a murder party and it says come alone <laughs> and he decides to go even though it wasn't left for him that he just stumbled upon it which <laughs> i think is uh a very wild concept that you just find an invitation lying around and you're like yeah fuck it i'm gonna go to this party right. <laughs> what a what a wild leap of of logic it doesn't work like like a ticket you can't just Say, oh, I, I, this invitation was on the ground, so that means you have to let me yeah, in. Yeah, it's not like you found a, a winning scratch-off ticket on the ground or something and <laughs> go redeem it, you know? But he uh, cuts up a cardboard box and makes himself a very uh, cheap, dumb-looking knight costume out of it. With the, the biggest great sword, I think, I've ever seen. Yeah, like seen. anime sword level. <laughs> and uh, he... I love that he takes uh, uh, the smashed pumpkin on his doorstep that some shithead kid broke and turns it into pumpkin bread with raisins with raisins in it because he doesn't want to show up to the party empty handed. Yeah, I fucking love that scene at the beginning where he comes home with his DVD or his uh, VHSs. And he's going to sit down to watch a movie, and the cat is just in his chair. Yeah, and it keeps... that's like the inciting incident, essentially. Like, his cat refuses to move from the chair. And rather than being a normal person and just ousting the cat from the chair, he's just like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to go to this party. <laughs> I love the scene, that scene, too, the way the cat just, like, stares at him. And Blankly. it, keeps, and it yeah. keeps cutting back and forth between them. Uh, one of the things I notice is that the the cat is uh, is listed in the credits, the, and the cat's real name is uh, Puff Snooty, <laughs> which is a fantastic name for a cat, and I greatly approve. He gets to the party, which is in like this old abandoned warehouse, and as he walks in, there's just like five. Like like you said, NYU post-grad types just hanging around, smoking cigarettes and snorting blow. And uh, as soon as he walks in, they grab him and tie him to a chair. Yeah, uh, I think they said they were an art collective. Yes. But each of them have their own uh, weird costumes on. What I what I liked is that a lot of them are wearing costumes from, like, movies, like movie characters. Like, one of the girls is dressed as uh, the, the replicant chick from the original Blade Runner, whose name I can't remember. One of the guys who just spends most of the first part of the movie sitting on the floor playing a PSP is dressed up as one of the the baseball gangsters from the Warriors. Yeah. 
Macon Blair is in this uh, as like a wolf man. He's a uh, for those who don't know, he's a, a frequent Jeremy Saulnier collaborator. I think they were friends in high school. He's in all of his movies and just directed that Netflix movie. I don't feel at home in the world anymore. Which, in terms of tone, I felt was very similar to this. It, 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 yeah, it definitely was. I like Macon Blair as an actor a lot. Yeah. I think he's always one of the standouts. He's the lead in Blue Ruin, and he does a fantastic job. Yeah, and he's uh, he's very funny in this too. Yeah, he does a great job in this. Essentially, so the guy makes it to this warehouse and uh you know it becomes clear that all of these artists plan on killing him by the end of the night for art you know? right but they what i love is that they don't really know they don't have like a project in mind they're killing him for the art but they they Ultimately, don't know they just want this grant right their their leader is this sort of uh hyper pretentious weirdo named alexander who (laughs) shows up with his with his drug dealer who he introduces as selling drugs out of the back of his grandparents pierogi shop (laughs) (laughs) and he keeps talking about how he has all of this money and that he's going to get them a grant from this piece. But they're always just arguing about what they're going to do. Like, the the Blade Runner chick is like a video artist, and she's working on an installation, and there's this other guy who's a photographer, and the the baseball kid is, uh, is a painter. So they... They just have this very vague idea of murdering for art, but without really any purpose, which I think is really, really funny. Yeah. Gives a whole new uh, meaning to doing it for the art. Yeah, they're definitely winging it, uh, which I found pretty funny. And much, much like Bucket of Blood... A lot of the things that happen are just, like, comedy of errors, like, total happenstance. Well, yeah, one of the first things we see in the movie once he gets kidnapped is, you know, he's tied to this chair, and one of the girls is eating the pumpkin bread that he brought. Uh, She asks about the raisins in it, if they're organic or not. Yeah, she says she's allergic to preservatives. Yeah. Yeah. Preservatives and non-organic raisins. She gets really dizzy. Yeah, they're like, should we call an ambulance? She's like, no, I'll be fine. I just get really dizzy. And then she falls over and lands on, like, a piece of metal or something, yeah. and it impales her in the head. Yeah, and she just, like, busts open her head. And, and just dies. And that's before Alexander shows up, so they're just like oh shit, this is going to piss Alexander off, so let's just go put her in that freezer over there. And Macon Blair, uh, after after she dies, uh, blames the, the protagonist and says he's going to kill him by dumping acid all over him. And the, the jug of acid turns out to be uh, acetic acid, which is just vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> they're wondering why he's not like burning, and they're like... I think this is just vinegar. (laughs) We're going to pickle him to death. (laughs) Right, we're going to pickle him to death. Once Alexander shows up, they decide that they're going to wait for the witching hour to kill him. So he's just tied to a chair 
while they're all just kind of like sitting around spewing pretentious bullshit well, about they, their art. They immediately decide to order food and get drugs. Yeah, the the Alexander's drug dealer brings a bunch of like truth serum. Yeah, like sodium pentothal. Yeah, so they all just sit around in a circle on the floor injecting themselves with sodium pentothal and like trying to find out each other's secrets. And Macon Blair is, like, totally in love with the Blade Runner chick who's not at all interested in him. And he just basically keeps sitting there being like, I love you. You remember that time where we were eating ice cream on top of the water tower and you dropped your popsicle stick? Well, I have that popsicle stick. And just, like, pulls it out of his pocket (laughs) in a Ziploc bag. And then uh, the girl dressed up in the Blade Runner get up. She starts to get into very racy territory, uh, talking about the N word, and uh, <laughs> yeah. making everyone incredibly uncomfortable. And it's it's weird. It like they f- just forget about the guy tied up for a second, just so we can have this uh, this scene where all these yeah these pretentious art people. Well, they go just, into uh, a big role with puns. For a solid couple oh, yeah. minutes. Oh yeah. <laughs> and they and they all they ask like uh who do you think is the greatest artist in the world? And, and they, they all, they all, they all raise their hands simultaneously <laughs> and say me. And then when it gets serious, the Blade Runner chick is like I I used to love art, but now I hate it because if it's good, it means that there's no room for me. I want all of the art to be bad so it like validates me, which I think like it's it's funny to hear it like in the context of the movie, but it's also like so fucking true about yeah. a lot of people as artists. Yeah. And I will admit something that I have even the kind of bullshit jealousy that I've even experienced myself when I see other people's work that's really good and I'm like, "Well, shit. Why isn't my shit that good, you know?" Yeah, yeah. I there's think- there's an element of insecurity with all artists, you know. It's that thing with ego versus actual art. You know? Right, exactly. Like what what is actually what art is actually saying something and what art is just completely masturbatory. And these these kids are very much the the masturbatory type of artists. Yeah. The photographer guy has all of his equipment, and at one point he calls in his assistant <laughs> to help him light the scene. And they're all like, "What the fuck is she doing here?" And he's like, "Oh no, it's okay. Like she, she I have to have an assistant. I have to have an assistant. She's she always helps me. Oh. I love the scene where." The main character escapes briefly. He manages to work his ropes loose, and they're chasing him around, and Macon Blair has a chainsaw, but it's not a cordless chainsaw, so he run, it runs out of cord and just unplugs and turns off, yeah. <laughs> which is like a very satisfying uh, subversion of that horror movie trope where the killer's got a chainsaw. Yeah, It's like, oh, convenient that they always have the cordless chainsaw, you know? Or they never run out of cord. And then when the guy runs into the closet and he's looking around, looking for something, and he sees a fire extinguisher, and you think, oh, he's going to come out of the closet and blast them with it and disorient them. But he just comes out with an armful of junk and just tosses it on <laughs> yeah. the ground in front of him. And just, and- like, runs and jukes by him. 
and then gets recaptured immediately. Yeah, and I thought that was hilarious. I also thought it was really funny. the The reason he escaped was able to escape without them noticing is because they got into like a five minute argument about what kind of food they should order. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> The, and then they just like turn around. They're like, "Oh shit!" And he's just gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> but and then they're looking around for him, and he hasn't even gone very far. He's just like crouched behind. Yeah, the, yeah. he's just like crouched In the behind most the obvious box. spot. <laughs> I, this movie is, I think, all about subverting those uh, typical kind of slasher movie tropes. And it, like in a very funny way, but also in very a re- like a very realistic way. These yeah. fucking artists are completely incompetent in well, everything that they're doing. Well, that's the thing. It's very big and campy with the artists, but at the same time, there it it there's a kind of an authenticity to it. Right, it's like, like what how this kind of thing would actually go if it happened in real life. Yeah, you yeah. Know? But it, it gets a little gruesome at the end, in the second half, but, like, even that, it, it it's played not too campy. Well, it's it literally, like, almost all of the violence happens through sheer incompetence. And you never really get to see any of these people's artwork. They're always just talking about it. Well, you do get to see, you get to see uh, the, the Blade Runner The girls. Blade Runner chick. She, she shows a brief clip of her, like... In her underwear in a bathtub, scree- <laughs> screaming while somebody her. pours hot dogs all over her. But it's it gives you the impression that their art is almost certainly as incompetent as their ability to murder somebody, you know? Yeah. Because Macon Blair is getting, like, piss drunk. I, he has, like, a jar of moonshine in a paper bag. He's getting drunk because the Blade Runner chick is fucking Alexander, and he's in love with her. And he's just dumping moonshine all over himself. And he goes outside to smoke a cigarette. And when he lights it up, his face just catches on fire. Well, I love how he he was trying to smoke his cigarette while his uh, wolfman... Uh, mask was mask on. Was on. <laughs> they have the the dog that Alexander brings that's named Hellhammer, and it's just like a like a like a dingo in a skeleton costume. And they tie it up outside. And at one point, they tell the baseball kid to go check on it, and he's just standing outside, like staring the dog down, going. I hate you. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> and then, and then when they go out, or the Blade Runner chick goes outside and sees Macon Blair's on fire, she just runs back inside. She's like, "Macon's on fire!" <laughs> and after they put him out, he tries to take his mask off. And most of his face comes with it. Yeah, I thought that effect was super gruesome. It's awesome. It's and, so gross. And cool. Like, it was obviously all practical. Yeah, his face is just melted into this, like, half-burned human face and half-melted mask. Yeah, you get, like, half of the, the mouth of the, the, the werewolf. Like, the, the nose and mouth are, yeah. like, stuck to his face. Well, at a certain point, they feel like something is fishy with Alexander, 
And so they inject him with the truth serum because he subtly did like pretended to inject. Yeah, himself he took earlier. like a pill, and they, he was. They were. Well, he like, injected. What was he that? injected it into a slice of pizza that he was holding. Oh yeah, so it that's looked right. like it looked like he was putting it into his hand, but he injected it into the pizza. But then they they stick him, and they're like. They're like, are you really an artist? He's like, nah, I'm a fry cook. My real name's Tim. I was going to kill all you guys and then sell your artwork because nobody makes money off their art until they're dead. <laughs> Which I thought was also very funny and poignant and yeah, kind of true. Yeah, I love how the, the, the one character that's set off the most by all of this is... Uh, the baseball guy who's just been sitting around. Yeah, the whole he time. he spends the entire first part of the movie just like totally apathetic. He's like, I don't care what we. He's eat. like, I I'll don't eat. really want to be here. I'll eat anything. Yeah, I'd rather be at home watching a DVD with my parents. Yeah. And he's just like playing his PSP the whole time. Yeah, and then uh, they they were saying they wanted to kick him out of the collective. And while he was away, they were just shitting on his uh, painting. Yeah, they saw him painting and they told him to go outside and check on the dog be- or uh, just so they could stand there and belittle his painting. Yeah. Just like you see super pretentious art people in a gallery doing. Well, and that, that, that says something about the art world, too. Like, everyone's eager to shit all over art unless the artist is right next to it. Right, of course. Well, that's that insecurity, you know? When the artist isn't around, you want to talk shit about their work because it validates your own, you know? Yeah. There's definitely that kind of petty... Uh, cutthroat bullshit in the art world. But before she's killed, the the Blade Runner chick manages to uh, unlock the main character, who really doesn't do much most of this movie. He really spends the majority of the movie chained to that chair. Which, he's sort of just, he's there as an excuse for us to be around. Right. He's, he's like the straight man of the movie. He's honestly. the, he's the lens through which we're viewing these other characters. And yeah, he is the straight man, but what's funny is he, the way he's set up at the beginning is he's establishes this really kind of weird, quirky dude but then when he's put in context with all of these other people, he seems completely normal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing, too. You know, like, they set up him up as kind of boring, honestly. Like, he's just sitting alone with his cat watching VHS tapes by himself. He's a TEA officer uh, who, in his own words, said, if he died, no one would really care. Right, because he spends his whole day writing people tickets and pissing them off. And sitting on the subway having people rap at him aggressively. Oh my god, that was so funny. (laughs) Which was one of the funniest scenes in the movie. Um, But once he's freed and the baseball guy is has started going on somewhat of a killing spree because at this point he's he just decides that he's committed to the whole idea and he's just like fuck this everybody's gonna die yeah he's like fuck this whole scene yeah you know (laughs) yeah that that was a really funny line he's like i'm so fucking sick of this whole scene or he says fuck fuck the scene everybody dies so he goes on a big chase uh, with the main character, and uh, they end up at 
this guy Cicero's party, who they've been mentioning all night as having like a competing Halloween party nearby. It's like a it's like a Halloween party slash gallery uh, gallery event. event, and he's got like this really pretentious. Uh, performance art kind of piece called like people of the subway or something yeah it's like it's like still life or performance art as still life with just all of these people sitting perfectly still in a room wearing weird outfits yeah topless girls with body paint and nipple piercings and like on on the wall there is just like a piece of paper that says art with a question mark (laughs) next to it (laughs) which of course just goes to show like what is art what defines art which is the eternal question and i thought that was really a very funny touch to put in that room is just like art (laughs) <laughs> I I love how like on the nose it was with that stuff because it feels like something you would totally see in like a in NYU. I like I like the type of thing. the part earlier before all this happens where uh, Alexander tells his drug dealer to go get a big bag of crank. <laughs> he's like, he's like, if we're going to do this, I want to be hopped up on crank. So you, I'll, I'll stall them. You go do that. And while he's leaving, he's like, before we get underway, I'm going to recite Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven in its entirety. <laughs> <laughs> and he just goes off and on he it. Just, yeah, he just starts going. <sighs> the, the This movie is full of really punchy funny shit like that um during the chase scene as the baseball guy's chasing him making blair you know wakes up with his face half melted and starts joining in on the chase but he's carrying around the the chainsaw but from before but this time he has a very very long extension cord but it's not plugged in he's just running around with the chainsaw unplugged and once that moment he finds an outlet (laughs) once he gets to that rooftop party and he has that moment where he's like looking at the string lights and he like follows them down to the outlet and he's like "Ah!" and he goes and unplugs him and plugs the chainsaw in yeah well the thing is he's still fucking hammered from all that right, he's still he's still drunk and his face is all melted one eye burned shut yeah so he plugs it in and almost immediately just falls off of the roof <laughs> meanwhile our protagonist is in that performance art room with the baseball guy who has killed all of the people with an axe and is coming to kill the protagonist when Megan Blair falls past the window and the chainsaw doesn't come on plugged so the protagonist just pulls it in through the window by its cord and starts it up and very gruesomely drives it into the baseball guy's face yeah i love how gory that scene was with uh, him just like chopping open the dude's face unlike bucket of blood there is way more than just a bucket of blood (laughs) in this movie i uh I had one thing that I, I, cause it is much goofier and more lighthearted than, than Blue Ruin or Green Room, but the violence in this movie, when it does happen, it, it, I think it, it carries over a lot Absolutely. of the same things from, from those where it's very like, 
awkward and real and drawn out like visceral well like the photographer guy when he gets shot in the head he doesn't die immediately he's angry he's like oh what the fuck as he's getting like well yeah i think at one point i think at one point he's like can't you just let me finish (laughs) like he's still trying to finish finish taking pictures as he's getting shot multiple times in the head but that is something that jeremy saulnier does really well is like the violence is extremely graphic and visceral, but it also feels real, like disturbingly so. Because the the reactions to, uh, I mean, either the 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 people committing it or the ones that are are getting attacked, like it it, it isn't like punched up or anything. It's not. It's not meant to, like, look any more effective than just uh, sort of like that. Like, when the, the first girl, she falls and hits her head, like, it's just that, that, that daisiness and before right, the death, where she, very... Yeah, where she doesn't really realize what's happened. Like, she's standing there with this big oozing hole in her <laughs> head, and they're all just, like, standing there looking at her. She's just like, huh? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> and then just, like, falls over. And after... The protagonist leaves. There's that great moment where a couple people come into the room and they see all these murdered people and blood splattered everywhere. And they're like, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Performance art is still life. <laughs> and then uh, the protagonist walks all the way home. He gets like a bowl of cereal or no, he uh, gets a bowl of leftover candy corn and the jug of milk and he goes into the living room and the cat is still sitting in the chair and it repeats that moment where it just cuts back and forth between them three times. He's just like, please get up, Mr. Lancelot or Sir Lancelot. And the cat finally does. And so he just sits down with his milk and his candy corn and turns on the TV, still in his costume, still just covered in blood. blood. And then it ends. And I think it's the, the perfect bookend to that movie. Movie's super short. It's only like 70 minutes, but like it doesn't feel too short. You know? No, it doesn't. Like it it feels like a feature film much more so than Bucket of Blood does, which does feel short and and quick. This one it it feels longer, not not in a bad way. I do think that like the first 30 minutes is so funny and so punchy that there is a little bit of a of a uh somewhat of a lull. Well, I think it's the inherent flaw of the premise, you know, if you have artists that are too pretentious and full of themselves to even go through and kill this guy, you're going to have scenes where they're just doing drugs and playing extreme truth or dare, you know? Right, and just, like, drawling endless platitudes yeah. and bullshit. Even, even those scenes didn't bother me too much, though, because they were so funny. Yeah, and I I think that there's some poignant criticism uh, there, or commentary, I should say, and I I don't think it's really too much of a detriment to the movie, but it's, uh, at least for me, a noticeable change of pace, whereas up till that point, like, the really sharp funny wittiness is like just coming at you rapid fire with the setup and then it kind of slows down and then picks up at the end yeah i would say once alexander decides that 
they're going to wait until the witching hour to all stab the dude is when it really slows down and yeah. you feel those like six hours that they right. have to wait. I, I would not say that that part of the movie is boring. I think that that would be going too far, but it, it's uh, a, a noticeable lull, I think. But overall, the movie's short enough that it doesn't uh, bog it down too much. But that is, I, I would say, the the middle is the is the weakest part of the movie. Do y'all want to rate this, or do you have anything else you uh, want to talk about? No, I'm fine if you want to just jump into it. Yeah, let's rate this. Okay. So maybe I could. I, I appreciated more things in this movie. One, because it's it's more recent than Bucket of Blood is, so it's easier to relate to that uh the the attitudes of these artists and uh Well yeah, they they reminded me a lot of a TA I had freshman year uh in my sound class who was uh, a grad student from nyu and And made it very clear that he was and he (laughs) like he was these people well and that's my uh my second thing as well just uh i uh i i know some people that uh that you know they're they're artists around in in new york and uh hey it's it's uh i'm sure it's it's a tough thing to try and uh Try and be an artist in one of like the biggest cities in in the world where there's there's uh there's guaranteed to be like a thousand other people trying to do the same thing and a hundred are probably better than you. And I've watched some of the videos that these uh that my friends have made and this movie just reminded me a lot of all that where it's just very like obnoxious and thinks that it's self-serious yeah self-serious more thinks it's more clever than it actually is and it's uh it's it seems like it just uh did a great representation of that not just to say oh they're they're just uh arrogant art people but that it comes from these places of like deep insecurities yeah how do you how do you get ahead in such a competitive space you know Right, and if they even enjoy doing the things that they uh, uh, they do, because right, like when the Blade Runner chick says that she hates art, she is an artist and she hates art. Yeah. I think that that's uh, uh, an interesting perspective, and I think it's kind of true for a lot of these things. Yeah, no, and it's 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 that really great line that this movie walks, where you know, these these uh, the this this group, the collective, like they're all bad. And they all secretly, like, hate each other, even though they're all, like, (laughs) within close vicinity of one another. They're all just liars, but... They're supposed to be friends, but they talk shit about each other's work. Exactly. But that they... That you you can sort of get why they are the way they are. And I think that just... That made it uh, a a much uh, more enjoyable critique of, like, the art culture than Bucket of Blood for me, even though I like Bucket of Blood as well. And, uh, yeah, the good old, uh, uh, just the the New York attitudes of it all, (laughs) and just hanging out in a warehouse to make your your projects just, it uh, it really stuck with me. And uh, uh, so I'm going to give it a four and a half, because I think the only problems I may have with it is that... uh, the violence might uh, might be at odds with the lighter tone, even though I think that 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 can work really well, just to show like, hey, this you know this this violent is real and 
it uh it's like we get so sensationalized with stuff you know to have like someone die on screen should have more of a oomph but uh yeah again that might be just problems for other people i i i'd say four and a half i wish that it was uh i i, I wish that there was uh maybe a little more length to it i uh because it all takes place in just this one location, but I think that it really... I mean, it, it could have been a full length, and I think it would have been great as a full length movie. So as it is, I guess it left me wanting more. But I had a really enjoyable time watching it, so highly recommended. Yeah, I'm I'm about in the same vein. I think for me, its length is fine. I already talked about how it starts to drag for me a little bit in the middle, but uh, I I think it's super funny like laugh out loud kind of stuff mixed with some really macabre graphic violence uh, that doesn't really feel at odds for me because the humor is often so dark. Uh, it feels tonally consistent with the with the violence and some of the grittiness for me. But overall, a, an extremely funny movie. Very fun, well acted across the board. Most of these actors have not really done anything else, uh, which is a shame because I think everybody did a fantastic yeah. job. Besides Macon Blair. Besides Macon Blair, of course, he has the the most uh, successful career after this, and I think it's because of his close proximity to Jeremy Saulnier. It's uh, sort of enabled him to branch out a little bit on his own and now direct his own films, which uh, I think is cool. I like him a lot as an actor and a director. And I'm excited for more Jeremy Saulnier because I love this movie and Blue Ruin and Green Room. Uh, I think he's definitely somebody to keep a lookout for in the future. I'm going to give this a four out of five. Funny, exciting, uh, well done for such a low budget. Yeah, just a solid movie all around. I'm really glad we... Uh paired these movies together um, because I feel like they're very similar in their critique of the art world. Um, you know, with Bucket of Blood, it's uh, a normal man who kind of gets enabled to kill people through this art world, while Murder Party is kind of the opposite, where the art world is enabled to m try to murder a dude for the art. Um, so I think it's a really cool juxtaposition between the two, um, seeing how both sides are kind of coming short because of the art uh, and because of the ego that comes with the art and the self-seriousness that comes with the art. Um, with Murder Party, I found it super funny. I love how sharp and witty the dialogue is. I think the the gruesome, visceral gore actually works for me because it feels like a send-up to, to horror movies where uh, early in the movie, you know, it's established on Halloween and you have all these spooky things, but the movie is kind of light throughout. So it's kind of cool to see a little bit of horror payoff in there. I think it takes a lot of the themes of Bucket of Blood and kind of shows a little bit more complexity to them, especially with the insecurity of the artist characters and how, you know, the art has made them jaded or kind of distant from others or narcissistic, especially narcissistic. So I thought a lot of that was really cool. 
But more than anything, this movie flies by at 70 minutes. You know, it never overstays its welcome. It definitely makes it makes you feel like wanting more, you know. I just thought this was an incredible movie. Definitely check it out. Definitely check out Blue Rune and Green Room as well. They're all incredible. But overall, I'm going to give this a four and a half out of five. Well, that gives Murder Party an average rating of 4.3 pods out of 5. Uh, both these movies, definitely worth seeing. A little bit of, a, of an unorthodox theme for us, but I'm very glad we decided to do it because I think it provoked a good discussion and brings up some of those age-old questions like, what the fuck is art? <laughs> Um, we don't have a game this week, uh, we're but gonna... impromptu, uh, to choose our next episode, pick a number between one and 10, Eugene. Ooh, I will go oh for God. My, I'll go for seven. It's my lucky number. I didn't know we were doing this. Pick I a number didn't prepare. between one and 10. Um, I'm going to say four. We will be covering, uh, three movies from 1974 in our next episode. Oh boy, oh. this is news to me. Okay. Well, in our next full-length episode, yes, yeah, because yeah, yeah, we've yeah, yeah. we've got a another mini pod coming at you next week. Uh, I believe we're gonna do Veronica. Yeah, yep. is that what we decided we're doing next? Uh, the Netflix film directed by uh, Paco Plaza, who directed the first three uh, Wreck movies. I've only seen the first one, uh, a film I like quite a bit. I'm excited to see what's in store for us. I don't know anything about the plot, and I'm kind of going to try to keep myself separate from it, I think. I saw saw the trailer. I've had it recommended to me by a couple of people. It seems to be just like The Conjuring, but in Spain based on well, you know one of those based on a true story demonic possession type of well, movies i've heard good things about it and i've been scrolling past it on netflix and not a lot so i'm hoping for the best i mean with demonic possession movies i feel like they've been done so much and so badly most of the time that yeah they've been done to, to death to get a good one is always a pleasant surprise not not to play into our ongoing joke of liking movies more because they're in a foreign language but i'm hoping that with veronica that a, a a foreign perspective, like a different cultural perspective, is going to bring something fresh to the demonic possession subgenre. We'll see. Maybe I'm going to like this movie more because it's in a different language. Ooh, a ghost. <laughs> ghost. Uh, well, if you like the show, you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We know you guys are out there. We've seen the numbers. We know that there are actually people listening to this show. We've seen the numbers, and they spell disaster for you at sacrifice. The numbers don't lie, and they spell disaster for you at sacrifice. But yeah, like if you're one of our regular listeners, just take like 30 seconds out of your day to leave us a rating and review. That would really help us climb in the charts a little bit and help spread the love of spooky movies. Yeah, and if you have any uh, questions, comments, disagreements, uh, anything you want to tell us, uh, feel free to email us at 
podpeoplepod at gmail.com. Unfortunately, we don't have an email question of the week. Yeah, we want to. We definitely would like to start doing a, a question of the week segment at the end of some of these episodes. So send us in some questions or fuck even comments. Give us something to talk about for a few minutes. Um, you can also follow the show at uh, Facebook or Twitter at Pod People Pod. Uh, leave us comments and questions and stuff there. We check those sites pretty regularly. So uh, interact with us there. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Sheets. Um, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of a side plug for another project Ben and I are working on with uh, Light Arc Studios. We're, we're starting to come to a head on this new game we're working on. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Light Arc Studios, L-I-G-H-T-A-R-C Studios. Um, we're putting out content every couple of weeks, showing some uh, concept art for the game, and we're uh, building up a demo. So if you're a gamer and you're interested in that stuff, definitely uh, stay so, tuned. Stay tuned. Especially it's, if you like strategy games or Lovecraft. Yeah. Um, do you guys have anything else you'd like to plug? Yeah, try uh, the wheatgrass pancakes. Uh, <laughs> they're good for your digestive system. The garbanzo system, bean But be, be wary of raisins with preservatives in them. Yeah, you don't want to faint and fall onto a piece of metal and bust your head <laughs> open. Definitely wouldn't want to do that. And if you happen to kill somebody's cat, just tell them about it. Don't, like, put it in clay or nothing like that. Yeah, all these, come on, uh, all, all those people out there who are killing cats and then molding them with clay and then trying to sell them as pieces of art, just be honest. Because at the end of the day, we're all looking for the truth. And isn't that the greatest art? Guys, but what am I supposed to do with this dog statue? Oh, no. It's been eyeing me all night. It's been giving me that crazy look. I call it a uh, dog with brick. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, as always, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this uh, thoughtful examination of the art culture catch us again next week uh with a mini pod of veronica i'm matisse van rossum i'm ben sheets and i am eugene yeah and they haven't got rid of me yet (laughs) and we are the pod people thanks again for listening and you know as you go to bed tonight ask yourself what is art what is art and what would you do for your art would you kill a man for your art (laughs) 